Welcome to this Farm Advisory Service podcast. I'm Chloe McCulloch. Today, Brexit is never far from our minds. It has the potential to have a greater or lesser impact on a number of different aspects of farming life. Nobody knows exactly what will happen, but many farmers are looking at their businesses to identify areas where they can most easily mitigate any potential impacts. Nowadays, the knowledge of the downstream supply chain, that is, where our agricultural produce goes, is often relatively good. But we generally understand much less about how the upstream supply chain works, that is, our suppliers' businesses. So with this in mind, we're here today with Matthew Everett, Commercial Director at Origin Fertilisers, to find out a bit more about the fertiliser industry. Matthew, Perhaps you could start by explaining a little bit about the Origin Fertilisers business. And you said the the, the total UK market is about 4 million tonnes. That's right, there's about 4 million tonnes in the UK and into Scotland there's about 700,000 tonnes. Okay, and where does that material typically go? Um, East, west, arable, grassland? Okay, Uh, into Scotland, uh, if we we itemise on that, then there's about 55% of the marketplace is is into the arable areas of, of into... Montrose and Invergordon uh, and then on air we'll have maybe 45% of the business over there. And what are the trends of fertiliser usage do you think? Have you seen a change over the years? Pretty much 4 million tonnes has remained a marketplace number for 15 years or so I suppose. It's not really changed much from that at all. What we have seen is maybe a change in the, in the type of nutrients that's been applied. Nitrogen will account for about 60% of that. If you look at arable land, then potentially we've seen a 20% reduction in phosphate applied. We've maybe seen a slight increase in potassium applied in, in arable areas. But in, in livestock sectors, in grassland markets, then we've seen significant changes, possibly 50% less phosphate applied in grassland areas. Mainly if you look at uh, intensive dairy farmers, they've obviously got a lot more manure. Uh, organic manure that's maybe farmed rather better than what it was previously and so soil analysis will demonstrate that these indexes are rising. The thing that I would maybe think is maybe a bit more concerning is actually that we're maybe still seeing deficiencies in potassium and we're seeing a lot less potash being applied in grassland areas. When ICI was selling a lot more nitrogen in the UK and we weren't bothered about the application rates because it was all about growing as much grass as we possibly could then we had to use things like um, acids on silage to make sure that was fermented. Nowadays, that's changed completely. The quality of silage is obviously very, very much more important, and so fertiliser usage in terms of nitrogen is much greatly reduced than to where it was on grasslands. A few years ago, I was involved in a project where we soil sampled an entire catchment mm-hmm. in the southwest, and what we'd found was, in terms of potash, you had some fields were very high for potash, and some fields were actually quite low for potash, even though there was a perception that there was lots of slurry being applied on a farm and that there would be good levels of potash. Uh, and the, in practice, what was happening was that certain fields were getting a lot of potash because they were easy to spread on. You could get onto them when the weather wasn't great and soil conditions were, maybe weren't just ideal. Uh, and then there were some fields which were a bit hungrier. It, it, do you recognise that? Absolutely, absolutely. If uh, the number of farms you can look at and uh, you look around the steading and your phosphate and potash indexes are quite high, but you look at the land that's maybe two miles up the road that doesn't ever see any slurry, that can be very deficient. And again, desires a, a different fertiliser policy completely. That's not always the case either. It maybe gets the same fertiliser up there as to what it gets on the steading too. I think um, in answer to that, we should be analysing our organic materials. 
uh, especially slurry. When that's getting applied in the spring, once it's agitated, you can get a representative sample. So you do understand exactly what's going to be in there. And we do know what the application rates are going to be, whether that's 2,000 gallons or two, application rate, uh, two applications of 2,000 gallons in the spring before that first cut signage is going to happen. At which point, if we've measured it, then we know what the application of phosphate generally is. If we've taken the soil samples from those fields, then we also know what the phosphate index is. We can then find out what the crop removal is going to be, and we can then put together a fertiliser policy that's actually going to match what that customer genuinely requires. One way of looking at it, it might be over-applying phosphate, and that might be an environmental issue, but to my mind, is actually making better use of the capital investment and making sure that he's going to get a return on his money. And in Scotland, we have... Uh, technical notes as well as RB209. Absolutely. If, I, if I'm taking this a step further, over the last two years we've been taking a number of soil samples, uh, origin that is, and we've demonstrated now that mainly in the livestock areas 12% of soils will still have a phosphate deficiency. But that's understandable because livestock numbers have changed in the majority of southwest Scotland. So we expect to see higher phosphate levels. But we should be taking note of the 37% that are actually in excess of levels of phosphate. But we also need to take note again of the potash, which is just over 40% of the soils that we sampled have the yield limiting potash levels. So again, demonstrates that we should be applying more potash. Slurry is not always balanced, and the application of that is certainly not always balanced. Coming back to the fertiliser product itself, where does our fertiliser come from, bluntly? <laughs> There's approximately a million tonnes that's actually produced in the UK. Um, not all of that stays here, um, but the, the rest of that fertiliser that comes into the UK will come from mainly EU countries. We'll bring half a million tonnes of fertiliser in from the Netherlands, for instance, as, as, a, as a country. We'll also bring in fertilisers from as far afield as Russia, Lithuania, uh, and then there'll be things like uh, urea that will come from, from Egypt, and possibly Morocco. Do these different countries produce similar materials or is the country of origin linked to some of the raw materials that have gone into a specific fertiliser product? Or I think your question is, are there similar materials? Are there ammonium nitrate? Are there calcium ammonium nitrate? Are there urea? Yes, they are. Uh, but they will all have different features and benefits. Price is obviously one thing. We want to try and bring something into the UK that's going to be uh, competitive and make sure that we keep uh, a lid on the price for our UK farmers. However, uh, we have to look at the quality of these raw materials as well. And if we're going to be requested to sell something that's going to do 24 metres, then we make sure that we have a product that will do 24 metres. And what are these raw materials broadly? Nitrogen, ammonium nitrate, uh, phosphate, triple superphosphate, diammonium phosphate. We used to have a potash mine in the UK, uh, but now all potash is, in, is imported into the UK now as well. Where does the ammonium come from? In these fertilisers or the nitrogen? Is this some sort of industrial process that captures nitrogen from the air or does it come out of holding the ground? Or No, it comes from, it comes from a chemical production that's basically uh, captured out of the atmosphere uh, and ammonia is then added to nitric acid and then that turns into ammonium nitrate. That sounds like quite a fuel a fuel heavy or a, a thirsty process in terms of energy? Yes, you're right. We can turn around and say, well, is there a where does the cost of fertiliser come from? Well, we keep a close eye on the cost of gas. At certain times of the year, therms are more expensive than others. At the end of the day, it's controlled by the cost of power, I suppose. And I, I guess the different countries that are producing fertiliser will all have slightly different market prices for 
gas and energy, does that have a bearing? To an extent, yes. Obviously, they'll have a selling price, but um, I suppose we have a phrase, the market will always find a level at some point, whether that be a UK market or whether that be a global market, they all have to remain competitive. What other sort of factors in influence the price of fertiliser on farm? Well, there's obviously, if we've been talking about gas and fuel and oil, etc., there's obviously how much fertiliser is required at any one time. It's a demand and supply scenario. Uh, there could be some big tenders in various countries which might have a, an impact on global availability of particular raw materials such as urea. And are we competing with other big markets for this fertiliser or does European fertiliser tend to stay in Europe? Does it... Well, there you go. At the end of the day, we have 4 million tonnes of very important products in the UK, but in all fairness, globally, it's a drop in the ocean compared to the world market. And I would love to think that um, our farmers will think that I'm not buying today because my, the price is where it is. Um, it's not going to make a big difference in the global factor, unfortunately. How does fertiliser arrive in Scotland? What's the process for getting it from A to B? Vessels. That's when the logistics becomes rather more complicated. They come on vessels onto boats. Uh, depending on the size of the, of the or the depth of waters, depends on how much fertiliser you can get on a vessel at that time. And then obviously once it's offloaded from that uh, vessel, then it needs to go into storage. And that obviously needs to be dry and a good, clean quality, of which then it can go and be bagged and turned into, uh, into uh, finished goods at that point there. Again, as I said, um, the majority of that are coming to the east side uh, but there's obviously some that comes into wear as well. It, it arrives loose and then is stored and bagged at plants in the UK? There'll be both. Uh, the, the majority of, of raw materials will come in bulk, uh, but there will be some bag products come as well. Typically, where does that come into the UK? Are there key ports that we use for that? or? Well, as I said, we have 12 sites, whether you look at Immingham, uh, Middlesbrough, Ipswich, Yarmouth. We also have a site in Plymouth. We also have a Newport, Sharpness, Avonmouth, Silleth and, uh, and Invergordon, Montrose. So those are our sites. And then presumably it goes into storage and gets shifted by road? Absolutely. Um, at the end of the day, the majority of our business is done, is, is done in bags. There's a small amount done in bulk now, I suppose. But at the end of the day, that's when the pressure starts to rise because it's the fashion of when does fertiliser get delivered onto farm? Is it a just-before usage scenario? And how many vehicles have we got available to uh, to get that fertiliser out in a short period of time? So from your perspective, what is the ideal lead time from a farmer when he, he knows when he plans to apply the material? Ideally, when does the order arrive with you to give plenty of time for these processes? Well, you used the word there, ideally. Okay, now ideally, I would like to take that back to the order process should be starting now. The order process should be taking soil analysis, we should be considering when we're going to get that slurry analysis done. We need to be considering what the usage of that field is going to be, what nutrient is it going to require. And that budgeting, that nutrient budget should be put together no later than January, really. At which point then a farmer has the opportunity of making a decision. Can he take it? Has he got storage on a farm to put it? Is he able to take it? Is the price right? Is it a rising market? Is it a falling market? Um, and then make a decision at that point then. The tricky part of that, as you can probably guess, everybody wants to sit back on their hands and get the best deal they possibly can and not make a buying decision until as late as possible. But if you make a decision on the 20th of March and you want your fertiliser delivered on the 21st of March, we have an industry that there's only so many wagons, there's only so many production hours, and obviously that puts us under a lot of pressure. If 
a customer doesn't order and give plenty of notice, then perhaps sometimes he's not going to get it on the day he actually wants it. Now, if the soil temperature rises, and we've got an early spring, look at February this year, we had a very, uh, an excellent two or three week period where we could have got a lot of urea applied early. If that urea wasn't on farm, ready to go, he's not going to apply any. 80% of, of fertiliser is applied between March and April, and the vast majority of that is delivered uh, fractionally before it's required. That's about 560,000 tonnes of fertiliser. Now, if you turn that back into full-load vehicles of 28.2 tonnes, that's 20,000 lorry loads of fertiliser that needs delivered in a very, very short period of time. Now, if you turn around and think, OK, we are going to be very hungry for vehicles and logistics at set p p at times of the year, then these vehicles have got to work for 12 months of the year. So they also have requirements to be working for other companies and other businesses. And sometimes we just can't get vehicles that we want just like that for a snap decision because the market suddenly starts to run. To compound that, then we're going to turn around and say, well, how many of those loads are actually full loads? So that 20,000 vehicles could suddenly become 25,000 vehicles quite easily because we're delivering 10 tonnes to a farm or 12 tonnes to another farm, possibly worse than that. Then to compound on top of that, we've then got rigid vehicles compared to Arctic because access can be rather more tricky. And then obviously lead times can be affected on the back of that. So clearly we have a, a business that we invest quite heavily into and we have done significantly to Scotland. We've spent nearly four and a half million pounds in uh, Scottish blending plants and uh, origin over the last five years. We want to be able to supply customers at the right time and make sure we give them the service that they require. But at the end of the day, it can be a one great big juggling job and uh, I admire our transport coordinators and our site managers greatly because it's all hands to the deck from... February, March, April and May. What do you think is what do you think are the drivers for farmers leaving it so late? Is it just because they're thinking about price or is it just because they're busy with other things and, and the time flies past? Well I would say there's two things. You're right, there is three things I suppose. The first one is I'm not ready to make a fertiliser decision because I'm busy lambing or I'm I've, I'm batch carving and I've got other things on my mind, I'm not gonna make that decision. The obvious one is price, because nobody likes to get a bad deal. Everybody likes to think I've bought that exactly the right time. And if you're looking at the stock exchange, nobody ever buys at the top. Everybody, and nobody ever buys at the bottom. Hopefully they'll buy somewhere in the middle and they'll sell somewhere in the middle and they'll make a margin. And that's what it should be deemed as. Uh, it shouldn't be, I've got the best deal. And uh, finally, storage. At the end of the day, where does it go? Where does that fertiliser go on that farm? Because clearly it doesn't want to be standing outside in, in bad weather. So there needs to be shed space. It should be looked after properly. Alternatively, we do have an option where uh, Origin does what we call four-pack, where we put four or 500 kg bags onto a pallet and put a hood over it and then shrink wrap it, and that can be stored outside. And that can alleviate um, transport issues for us because we can deliver that in December and January quite easily. Customer doesn't need to, to worry about where it's going to be put, it can be left outside, it is guaranteed outside. Yes, there's a cost for that, but if you're thinking it's a rising market, then that can be, you can, a farmer can make money by taking fertiliser early. But unless he knows about a four-pack option, he can't make that decision. Interesting that you say four or five hundred kg bags. Five hundred kilogram bags, <laughs> six hundred kilogram bags... What's the driver behind that? Okay, well, it's fairly simplistic. We've gone to 600 kg bags as a, as a, as a business now throughout uh, the EU on account that it's using less plastic. Uh, we can get more fertiliser on the back of a wagon, which then means it's using less diesel. 
the 500 kg bag on the back of a, of a pallet is simple, it's stable. At the end of the day, it won't fall over, so there needs to be 500 kg bags to go on those pallets. It's as simplistic as that. So it's interesting that you mentioned the plastic. That's becoming an increasingly topical issue. Is that something that you're coming across in the fertiliser industry? Um, I think at the end of the day, moving on to 600 kg bags was a, a, a difficult move in terms of, of habits, let's say. Uh, but yes, there is less plastic used. When it comes to using fertiliser bags, it's actually recyclable. And where we say we're 600 kg bags, we do have a market for one tonne bags too. And I think there's probably a lot more people that could possibly use one tonne bags more than the 600s. That's obviously up to their own personal preference, but that would mean there's less plastic taken on farm, there's less plastic to move, there's less space taken to store fertiliser. So it's something that we do do anyway. And it's not just us. And the arithmetic gets a bit easier as well, <laughs> possibly. Yeah, the six times table was always a tricky one, wasn't it? <laughs> Liquid fertiliser is not something we see a great deal of in Scotland. Why are we usually focused on solid fertilisers? We're very, very much focused on solids. Uh, liquid fertiliser is a, a business throughout the UK and it has a reasonable market share. And I think that, uh, again, it's horses for courses and individuals will choose what they want to use. Personally speaking, I think that the, the, the management of granular fertiliser is somewhat easier and we can also have a far, and this is quite important in my book, we have a far, far greater spectrum of nutrient that we can apply. I mean, within Origin, we, we could supply over 12,000 different blends, individual blends for individual people if they wanted to. So you've got a much greater choice in products. Okay, so it's a system that we call Nutrimatch in actual facts where we can, we were discussing about soil analysis and slurries, etc. So at the end of the day, we can basically give a far better uh, solution for our customer using a, a granular product. Liquid fertilisers, I think, can be very uh, accurately applied. But again, it's horses for courses. They've got to be set up for that business. They've got to have tanks. And so it's down to the individual's preference. You referred there to blends and compounds. Mm -hmm. Could you say a little bit about the difference? Uh, a blended fertiliser is uh, an accrual of nitrogen, phosphate, potash, sulphur, uh, and different types of nitrogens, different types of phosphates put in a bag in a, in a, in a very specific manner, weighed to equate to a fertiliser analysis that a customer is specifically looking for. We can make up to 12,000 different grades, so we've got a massive choice for people. So we have an opportunity, to, depending on soil analysis, uh, slurries and crop, crop re uh, requirement, to make a prescription blend, and we can in that put 14 different nutrients into that bag that the customer can choose from. A complex compound is a bag of fertiliser that has all the nitrogen, all the, all the phosphate, all the potash and all the sulphur in the same singular granule. Okay? There's no uh, obvious choice or there's no obvious difference in appearance. Every granule remains the same. What do farmers need to think about in terms of the storage of their fertiliser and how long they can store fertiliser for? Well, as I've often said, um, fertiliser is not a fine wine. It doesn't get better with age. However, um, we obviously expect to put a blend into a, a fertiliser bag and it's a last quite a lengthy period of time if the storage uh, is, is correct. What we're looking for, I suppose, is a good dry shed that's not leaking. Uh, preferably if I have my own way then I would like to see fertiliser stored on top of pallets even where it is indoors because you can still take your moisture from, from underneath but ultimately we should be seeing fertiliser in good uh, situation stored for in excess of six months if it's, if it's kept correctly 
However, something that's a damp shed that's leaking, that's maybe got straw on the floor and it's maybe not handled in the manner that, that's, uh, that it should be, then you can imagine it's not going to last quite as long as, as that. Um, do you do any granular lime product? Yes, we do. We do do, uh, and I would suggest that marketplace is actually growing uh, for two reasons. I think that um, it can be pretty tricky to get uh, ground calcium lime when you need it. Um, timing of application can be critical because it can it can mash a field quite badly. Um, so granular lime is becoming more popular. Equally, in a serial scenario, it's a product that can do 24 metres down tram lines. And so nominal applications yearly or biannually, etc., can be quite beneficial. I think that from experience of, of broad-spectrum soil analysis, if you're looking specifically at calcium levels, then calcium levels generally are quite low in the UK. Um, now, we can look at pH and say that that's going to be affected by a lime application, which it will, but a pH is a measurement of hydrogen ions, not a measurement of calcium in the soil. So I do think that using granular lime uh, a little and often is probably something that's going to become more popular uh, in, in the future. If you actually look at pHs, if you take that into, into account, when I've mentioned about doing the, the, the Scottish soils in the last two years, 69% of the soils that we've taken have a pH of less than 6. That's a worrying thought in my mind. It's probably one of the most fundamental things of, of uh, looking after soil, getting that pH above 6 and being greedy as I am. I would like to see it between 6.2 and 6.5. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of work to be done. In an ideal world, from your perspective... What is the ideal procedure for making that fertiliser purchase or arriving at that fertiliser order? Okay, well I think um, there's a massive perception in there and, and the first one I would throw into the ballpark there would be it's cost versus efficiency. So if something is £100 a tonne, does that make that cheap? And if something's £500 a tonne, does that make that expensive? I would suggest that £100 a tonne is expensive if it's the wrong product and it's not going to do the job you want it to do. So I think that is absolutely key. And I suppose what I would like to think that um, Origin doesn't just put nutrient into a fertiliser bag. In that fertiliser bag, you should have a number of things. You should have professional advice. You should have somebody that's facts qualified that's actually going through the soil analysis, the broad spectrum samples that you've taken to give you advice as to what the application rate and what nutrient you should be applying, what analysis you should be buying. So technically, they, they should be clued up. We should have a nutrient plan of some description. Now going forward, that's going to be a compulsory issue where if you've taken your soil samples and you've then justified the fertiliser that you've applied onto the fields following the, to those soil samples, we should have a nutrient plan drawn up. For me, that, that, that's key. Um, it's not just broad-spectrum soils we need to be taking into account. We should be looking at manure analysis. As I said previously, if you, uh, once you've agitated your slurry, we can, there's no reason why we can't take a, uh, an analysis from there. We know the application rate of that organic manure at that point, and also we know exactly how much phosphate and how much potash has just been applied onto that field. We can justify, justification is a magic word, if we can justify the massive cost that you've just spent on that fertiliser in the first place, knowing that I've done the best I can for my crop, that's good justification. But we also need justification for things like the Water Framework Directive. We need justification for farm inspections. So we need to be able to justify to these guys exactly that we're using the right nutrient. Environmental issues, they're important, but actually getting a return on that investment, to my mind, is even more important. Once we've actually got to that stage, then you can tailor the correct fertiliser policy. We can give a precision uh, prescription blend 
as I say, that can have rather more than just nitrogen, phosphate and potash. We can have sodium, we can have sulfur, we can have selenium, we can have cobalt, we can have manganese, we can have iron, boron, etc. All of these things can be added to fertiliser at different rates. But if we've actually examined what we're trying to achieve, then that fertiliser becomes much more specific for that individual requirement and that needs. And then on top of that, eventually you do need something that's going to spread evenly and something that does sit in the bag, that it does sit around for, for a month or two before it's ready to be used. And we do need to, uh, to, to support those farmers with that kind of a scenario. We call it Nutrimatch. It's a, it's a very specific thing that we're doing now, but having a precision blend is, is a way forward. Origin Fertilisers is uh, currently a business made up of 12 production sites throughout the UK. Uh, the majority of them are all port-based, as you would imagine. Um, the business has grown and developed over a number of years uh, through acquisitions of cars, fertilisers, of SFD in air, uh, and BUMS was the most recent acquisition in the UK. Origin will supply approximately 25% of the total market in the UK now in predominantly blended fertilisers, straights, nitrogen, sulphur, uh, phosphate, potash, etc. We do do some complex compound fertilisers too. We market our fertilisers to the arable sector, but also to grassland. We have a sister company based in Immingham called PB Kents that supplies the amenity market in the UK as well for lawns and, and uh, football pitches, rugby pitches and so on and so forth. Thinking back to Brexit for a moment, do you think there's any real likelihood that our environmental legislation will change its direction of travel over the coming years? Uh, absolutely not. No, at the end of the day, I think that's, uh, that's here to stay. I think environmental issues are uh, very important going forward. Um, clearly, we've got Cleaner Air Scotland, we've got the Clean Air Strategy, we've got the Water Framework Directive, and I think you've got a target up here in Scotland of 90% carbon reduction by the year 2050, which I think is being challenged because that's maybe not a high enough target. At the end of the day, these things aren't going to go away. So that they'll, they'll continue, and I suppose as a fertiliser supplier into the industry, I have to be mindful of that, and I obviously want to make sure that the products we supply uh, are taken in context and will help support farmers go down that route. However, the most important thing on that route, on that journey, is that they're getting their hands held by facts-qualified advisors that give good quality advice to help them uh, utilise products efficiently at the right time of year to grow the crops that they're wanting to, to, to grow. Um, and that's absolutely key in my book. Thank you very much. Um, do you have any final words for us, Matthew? Okay. Um, yeah, a couple of things. Uh, at the end of the day, we're, we're at the beginning of November now, and I know that spring could seem quite a long way off. However, it'll soon be upon us, as, uh, as, as it always is. Over the next two or three months, I'll be uh, supporting my merchants that I work with uh, quite closely by doing a number of farmer presentations. And hopefully, we'd love to see as many customers come along and, and, and listen and, and talk about broad-spectrum soil analysis and analysing slurry and choosing the right fertiliser policy for the right time of year. That would be really important. Uh, so we can try and help people and guide people go down that route. Equally, um, I suppose we do have to set the ball rolling in this decision-making process now because at the end of the day, by the time we get to January, which is only going to be 60 days away, um, we need to be thinking about getting fertiliser delivered on farm. So it has to be the right product, in the right shed, being stored in the right place, and try to alleviate as much pressure as we can possibly see that's going to be happening in March and April. Because at the end of the day, there's only so many wagons to go around. Thank you. Thank you.
That was Matthew Everett from Origin Fertilisers. For more information, visit the FAS website www.fas.scot.com.